Hello, everyone. This is another episode of The Circuit. I am Ben Beharin. Bienvenidos a todo. I'm Jay Goldberg coming to you from Peru today. Jay is in Peru, and we're hoping for good internet connections with Jay in Peru. Um, so the topic we've got the topic we've got today has actually been very requested, and the reason it's taken so long is because Jay and I are a little bit out of our technical depth with this subject. Most, if you follow our our podcast, we have largely been focused on logic, and that is very different than the topic we're going to have today, which is memory. So because of that, uh, I have had a couple of good conversations um, with our guest, Stephen Wu from Rhombus. So Stephen, thanks for joining us. Why don't you give us a little bit of just brief intro on yourself, maybe in case anybody's not familiar, I doubt they're not what Rhombus does, but um, I'll turn it to you. Sure. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, guys. Yeah, my name is Steve Wu. I'm a fellow and a distinguished inventor at Rambus Incorporated. And for the last close to 30 years, I've been working at the company on various aspects of memory technology and how they integrate into memory systems. And Rambus has a long history in developing both memory technology that goes into things like DRAMs, as well as the chips that talk to them. And we also produce our own chips that talk to memory, as well as uh, in the past, we've done things like producing circuits that help companies that make processors talk directly to memory. We also do some other things. Uh, we do things related to security, and uh, there's a lot more interest in trying to keep infrastructure and data secure as well. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of things, uh, you know, mostly around data and, and uh, moving it and kind of keeping it secure. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to have you. The, the conversations we've had, I, my, I was trying to say, well, let's, let's talk to Stephen, and then maybe I'll try to do this on my own. And I was like, no. We're, we're going to need you to uh, to talk about some of these things. So so maybe just jumping off, <clears throat> I know a lot of our listeners, you know, for the most part, are follow this industry closely. But but I thought a good kind of evolution, you know, where where's memory gone? How did we get to where we're at? Right? What were some of perhaps of those pillars of um, of innovation that 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 got us to where we are in memory? Yeah, it's a great question. So really, in a nutshell, part of how we got to this point where memory has become so important is really because over the course of the last few decades, you know, we've uh, had more demanding kind of processing needs and our data sets have gotten larger. And what's happened is that processors have continued to get faster at this incredible rate. So companies like Intel and uh, some other companies like IBM and AMD have really contributed to making processing faster. Now, memory has, has also advanced, but it hasn't advanced at the same rate. And so the problem that has kind of come up is that the processor really needs to work together with the memory. And if one of them is getting better at a much faster rate than the other, then the other starts to become a bit of a bottleneck. And part of what you're seeing now is uh, this kind of uh, confluence of these things of can we make the memory go faster? Can we make it be higher capacity to fit these data sets? And can we make it be more power efficient so that we're spending more of our watts on the processing? And uh, kind of another emerging issue that's coming up is uh, how do we make the memory um, continue to make it very reliable? Because as we get these things smaller and they run faster, reliability becomes more of a challenge. So that's kind of in a nutshell how memory became so important. 
Maybe talk a little bit about some of the, um, you know, reliability factors, you know, like you, like you talked about, right? With every major transition, right? We've got DRAM still as a major significant part now. We're moving to more HBM. Um, obviously, we're seeing parts of these products now start to get packaged onto chiplets, right? In terms of trying to bring the, me- the memory closer. But it's very different than logic, right? In terms of how we've we've evolved this process. So maybe just talk a little bit about some of those fundamental differences between memory transitions and then why why that matters about kind of where we are today with obviously leading edge DRAM and, and moving to HBM. Sure, yeah. So one of the biggest challenges with making better memory um, is, first of all, um, having higher capacity uh, on those memory chips. And it turns out in order to do that, the little capacitors which store charge that represent ones and zeros, um, they have to become smaller so you can pack more of them onto a chip. And when you start making capacitors smaller, it starts to become harder to tell. You know, is there charge there or not? Mm. And that charge does leak off over time. So keeping that charge on those cells and having them be so small is one challenge in, in getting the storage density higher. There's a couple of other challenges though. Um, now, because these cells are smaller and because we want to transfer the data at higher rates, we got to be able to get it in and out of these smaller cells much faster. And it turns out that the industry works very hard on uh, ways at every new process node to keep doing that. But because these cells are smaller and because they're closer together, they start to disturb each other a little bit. So accessing cells in one area can start to disturb um, the stored charge in cells that are close by. And there's new effects um, uh, related to disturb. Something called row hammer is starting to become much more well-recognized in the industry where accessing one set of cells can accidentally cause um, the cells near you to flip their their bits. Mm. And so now you can start to get errors in these cells that you haven't even touched. Um, Mm. So that's a challenge. And then um, just the process technology that we use to make DRAMs you know, it's really designed to kind of store the charge and hold it. It's not really designed uh, in the same way that we see processor transistors. They turn on and off quickly in part because they're kind of leaky. They're never really fully off and, uh, and, and that allows us to turn them on quickly. But if you have something that's leaky in the DRAM world, that could mean that the stored charge on your transistors can leak away. So the, the goals are just really different in the manufacturing process. And what you have to do to make the memories faster is just different mm. than what we do in a, pro, uh, in a kind of a, a processor-based process node. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That, that's a good, good transition to this question that even through the series of, ch- of conversations we've had, I've still tried to wrap my brain around. But, but, but basically, you know, the way that we think about measuring innovation is is just different right in in logic we're trying to push to the newest node and so that means you know let's get to three nanometer let's get to two nanometer and we use that along with transistor design as a way to to measure that we're moving forward now that's very different in the memory world right nobody out there you guys micron they're not out there going we're leading the way at five nanometer or three nanometer like they don't use that same metric right so so i'd love just for you That's to right. kind of lay that out, right? How, how do we, well, one, why is it different? And two, what yep. are some of those things that when yourselves or a, or a micron or, or others say, 
like we've done this, like we should say that's a big deal. Like that's a move forward in, in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So it turns out that different markets kind of rank their needs differently. So I'll give you an example of what happens in like server main memory. So this is the DDR market. So, you know, one of the big things that needs to happen each new generation of DDR device is you've got to, you know, up the bandwidth. And typically we look to double the bandwidth with each new generation of device. And we also look to double or quadruple the capacity that you can have in the memory system as well. And for the reasons that I just mentioned, you know, that like it's hard to make the cells smaller, it's hard to make them go faster. Um, it's tremendous progress if we're actually able to achieve those goals, but we actually can't do it at any cost. It turns out that memory in servers today um, it is about half the cost of a server. And you really can't ask end users to be paying much more than that. That's kind of a, a limit that they're willing to go. And so in addition to going faster and having more bit cells on your chip, you have to do it in the same kind of cost budget as exists today. So, um, you know, it's considered a great win in the main memory market for servers if you can do those things and keep the cost mm. roughly the same. Interesting. Could so we, so if I, I guess... If I, a, sorry, could, go ahead, Jay. Could we take a step back? Could we just take a step back? You mentioned DDR. I was hoping, could you just walk through the different sub-segments of, of DRAM? Sure, yeah. So DDR is um, kind of the really the lowest cost and most pervasive memory that's out there. It's used in lots of things, consumer devices, but most people are aware of it from using it in computers. So it's packaged on these things called DIMM modules. And if, if we have people that you know buy their own components and are DIYers like me, uh, you're used to buying these modules and kind of snapping them into the motherboard. That's the pervasive memory there. And again, the constraints, like I mentioned, are really about hitting, um, you know, uh, advance, you know, making advances in bandwidth and in capacity within a reasonable cost. Now, it turns out that um, about every five years, we come up with a new standard in main memory like DDR. Now, there are other types of memory. So I'll give you an example, like AI is really the big flagship thing everyone talks about these days. AI has uh, very different demands. Um, in that particular space, you're looking for absolutely the highest bandwidth that you can possibly manufacture in an external device at um, if you you know it's, it's at a much higher cost per bit than DDR. But there's a kind of a um, there's kind of a level that the market accepts, and so that uh, level of cost per bit is now becomes the new envelope you try and operate in. Turns out that the rate of progress with AI training engines that we've seen from people like NVIDIA, for example, um, they're really wanting to double the bandwidth every, really every couple of years. So now we're talking about being on a completely different um, progress curve compared to DDR. What's interesting is that the fundamental technology you use to build the capacitors that form the bit cells, it's the same between the highest end memories like HBM and the mainstream memories like DDR. And they do that because it's very expensive to buy the equipment and being able to amortize it across a wide range of product lines is exactly what the industry needs. So the innovation there is to be able to say, can we continue at this breakneck speed to continue providing higher bandwidth? And it's also gotta be managed within a power budget and within a cost budget, although the cost budget's higher. 
But the challenge is, can we do it with very similar manufacturing technology that we're using to produce this lower cost, more mainstream memory? And there's other types of memory. So cell phones, for example, have a specially optimized type of memory called low power DDR, which as its name implies, it's really designed to, um, to optimize the use of power, yet still give you very good performance. And then finally, there's a special kind of memory used in graphics called GDDR that was developed a little more than 20 years ago. And it's the kind of memory you see in these graphics cards from AMD and NVIDIA and in graphics engines from people like Intel as well. It does show up in some AI applications as well. And the constraints there are the physical environment that those devices go into. They allow you to do different things in order to get high performance. And so, um, you know, the variations in memory are as much about how those markets value the metrics as it is about the physical environment that those devices have to operate in. And when you say manufacturing challenges, are, are we talking about EUV, lithography, uh, and and I assume for for HBM, this AI memory, uh, another big challenge there is you layer on top uh, packaging. Is that, is, that, is that intuition right? Yeah, that's right. That's correct. Yeah. So um, it turns out that, um, like you mentioned, um, uh, the packaging turns out to be a critical element of the design of the memories. And so when we talk about manufacturing, uh, HBM, for example, it consists of a stack of multiple DRAM die layers, and it includes another die that acts as an interface to the outside world. So one of the challenges HBM has is this additional stacking that other DRAMs don't have. Um, other DRAMs are just a monolithic piece of silicon. So it has assembly challenges that you need to manage. It also has test challenges uh, because of that. So, but um, you know, the market allows that device to be more expensive. And so it becomes worth it to try and solve all these problems. The problems are still there, but it's economically feasible to, to sell a part like that because the market bears a higher price. And then go, going forward is, is lay, stacked memory something that's going to spread to other segments in the market? Or is it overkill for, say, LDDR? Yeah, it's a great question. So it turns out these days when you look at where the power is being spent, it turns out a lot of the power in a memory system is just simply moving the data on a horizontal plane from the processor to the memory, which is somewhere close by. And if a lot of that uh, power is spent in that horizontal movement of data, then what you want to do is you want to get rid of that horizontal movement. In the case of HBM, we've done our own analysis and HBM2, for example, about two thirds of the energy is spent moving the data simply between the processor and the memory. You aren't doing anything with the data, you're just moving it so it can be actually processed on. So now there's a heavy incentive to think about, wow, you know, if, if two thirds of the energy is being spent there, one way to think about reducing that energy is to go with vertical stacking. Instead of the distances of the connections being, say, on the order of 10 millimeters, it goes on the order of 100 microns. And so now we're talking about a couple of orders of magnitude lower distance, and that can be a tremendous power savings. For other markets, depending on how important power is, for example, and of course the low power markets, the mobile markets, power is very important. As that becomes a larger part of the pie, 
uh, and something that we're spending a lot of energy on just to move the data, then there's more incentive to start thinking about stacking those devices more tightly than they already are today. Hmm. Okay, I'm I'm intrigued by your your costs point. I think I think that was a good one. I mean, I think what you're insinuating too is that the costs to push to another leap in either manufacturing is actually very expensive. I, I, it, maybe you can you can tell me because this is where I'm going with this question. Maybe more expensive than a leading edge foundry. So so roughly, right? If 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 you guys are Micron or somebody when they're thinking about building another manufacturing process, right? Moving to the next, whatever we're talking about, right? Node-ish. I know they're named differently. Like what's an estimate for that? Like what are some of those numbers in terms of how expensive it is to jump to the next process? Yeah, great question. So um, I'll give you an example that was very public. So a year ago, Micron announced they, they were going to be investing in a mega fab in New York. And you know this is a multi-year kind of commitment. It's going to take time to fill the fab and uh, to buy new equipment. You know each couple of years to get to the next process node. They announced an investment of up to one hundred billion dollars over a period of several years in order to keep that fab um, supplied with the right equipment to get it off the ground and to get it to a point where it's manufacturing. Uh, you know, uh, parts that they can make a lot of money with and, and get that investment back. Hmm. So that gives you an idea. And the whole DRAM market itself over the last 10 years, the revenue of the entire market has fluctuated anywhere between $40 billion and $100 billion per year. So now you can see, you know, with a $100 billion investment over the course of multiple years, you're really planning for being able to recover that investment over multiple years uh, in the uh, revenue uh, from the DRAM market. That's helpful. Okay, good. I appreciate appreciate that perspective. It, it, yeah. it basically sort of confirms why it moves a little bit, or at least it feels like it moves a little bit slower, which has kind of always been, I mean, we could debate that, but that's kind of always been my big question, like why why is it not moving at the same pace? But that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it goes back to the the point we talked about about how um, there is a big incentive to take the equipment that you've bought and use it across as many applications as possible. Some of it is because these machines are finicky, and so if once you get it to a point where it's producing at a high yield. You really want to just keep using it like that. You know, it's very difficult to take these machines and change a lot of parameters because then you spend a lot of time recalibrating. Um, the worst thing that can happen is you have downtime in your manufacturing facility because of this recalibration, because that means you're not producing wafers and you're not making money. So once you get it right, you really want to keep things where they are. Just following up on that. Are, are there big differences between a, a logic fab and a memory fab? Is it the same same sort of equipment, but maybe in different configurations, or is it uh, something more different? Yeah, I think you know fundamentally the types of equipment are the same, and the man, you know the the steps that you think about when you're making a, a DRAM chip versus a, a logic chip are you know fundamentally they're similar. You do things like implantation, you etch, you lay metal down, you etch things away. The difference is really um, memory tends to be, in, especially for something like DDR, because it's such a low margin device, you really don't have as many layers, for example, that are available to you. Like one really good example 
is with processors, you can see them have, you know, more than 10 layers of metal to do things like routing your signals between different transistors and things like that. But with DRAMs, you have far fewer layers of metal. And what that does is it reduces the cost, for example, and by reducing the number of layers and the number of steps, that makes it cheaper to manufacture the devices. So, you know, as, as we go through, as memory manufacturers think about, how do I actually implement the next generation of devices? One thing that's always top of mind is how many steps are we really talking about and how complex are those steps? Because memory in general tends to be a lower margin type of device than a processor is. Mm. Makes sense. Makes sense. Got it. Um, all right. So what about applications sort of driving, you know, this, we, we talked about, um, you mentioned AI for HBM. I assume those others, right. But, 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 but it's interesting to me that the, the cost curve to, and, and, and I meant to say at the beginning, cause I, like me memory as a, as a giant dollar figure in terms of market. I mean, it's, it's some of the highest bomb of any category. It's the largest percentage of spend on data center. So, so people know like memory is expensive. Like these are not commodity bits in every way, shape or form, right. Compared to, to other, other, bit. but, but, but even within that, there's still right this drive to say, well, we need we need more. We know we need to put now AI is an obvious answer. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it, but maybe a little bit more about some of those structural reasons that AI is pushing this, and then other things, right? I don't know if there's other elements about high performance computing. Yeah. So so what are those what are those fundamental things just driving the need to innovate in memory? Yeah, so let's start with AI because that one's, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of awareness about the need for memory there. And part of what's driving AI is that these models that we're dealing with, they're just getting bigger. Um, and if you kind of look over the last 10 years, um, many of the kinds of AIs that have been implemented, large language models, generative AI, they become so much more accurate when the models become bigger. And when the models become bigger, there's more parameters in those models. These days, we're talking about models with more than a trillion parameters, and that requires you know, quite a lot of storage. And it's gotten to the point now where these training engines, they don't have enough memory capacity to do all the training on one engine. So now what we do is we chain together multiple engines and we, uh, and we break the problem up as best we can and try and do the training in parallel. That has a cost though. It turns out communication between those engines is much slower than the actual compute that goes on with on a single engine. So what that ends up meaning is that there's tremendous pressure on the memory industry to provide high capacity memory so that we don't have to chain together as many engines and waste time moving data back and forth between those engines. So that's one big driver um, in AI, capacity, and then bandwidth, of course. If we've got big models, you need to move them very, very quickly over to the compute engines. And in AI, there's a big concern about how much energy is being spent simply moving mm. that data, you know, kind of what we had talked about a couple of minutes ago. Mm. If you think about other applications, things like servers, for example, there's also a tremendous need for capacity, but the capacity demand is really driven by something different. Um, we're all familiar with processors from people like Intel and AMD. They have lots of cores, and those core counts have been growing very dramatically over the last few years. 
turns out every one of those cores wants its own portion of the memory capacity. And if we double the number of cores, you're gonna wanna be doubling the amount of memory capacity. Now it turns out, like I mentioned before, that DDR has traditionally been on this kind of rate where we're doubling the capacity every five years. One of the problems that's come up is that the number of cores in a CPU has been doubling faster than every five years. So now you're running into a problem where um, in some cases you may not be able to supply the kind of capacity that each core wants. And, and that's driven in part because the number of cores on the CPU is so high. Um, there's an analogous issue related to bandwidth where each one of those cores wants its own memory bandwidth as well. And the memory bandwidths haven't been scaling as fast either. So the industry is looking at other solutions um, another type of interconnect called the Compute Express Link or CXL, which is another way to add capacity that's, that's a little bit different than the traditional way that we do that. And you can add a little bit of bandwidth as well. So the industry is looking to enable that and to see if that's, uh, you know, how that best addresses uh, the needs of these growing uh, core count CPUs. Could, could you just speak to that real quick about, um, I think that's a, a really good point. So chiplets basically mean that on package, I could throw a ton of cores. How, how might mm -hmm. memory handle that in this? I mean, I've seen some of the designs, right? Memory stuck on the outside, but, but to, your, to your point, if you're throwing a bunch of cores, at, at, I mean, I wonder if at some point, mm -hmm. is it harder to support those with memory? Like, does that become a continued constraint if somebody's oh, yeah. going to throw a giant package of, of cores in a chiplet design? Absolutely. So in practice, what's great about chiplets is in a small area, I can do a lot. So I've got all these little chiplets. They're each doing something. Like they've each got processor cores and things like that. But eventually you have to kind of pay the piper. You got to come outside of that conglomeration of chips, uh, chiplets, and you have to talk to the outside world. And one of the elements in the outside world has traditionally been DRAM memory. And so the way we do that is um, on this collection of chiplets, there's a package and the package itself has a bunch of balls on it. And if I'm supporting more cores, I need more balls to support more memory channels to support the capacity and bandwidth that this whole collection of chiplets needs. Now, if you've kind of watched over the last few generations, those packages have been growing in terms of ball count pretty dramatically. And the packages now are gigantic compared to, uh, at the high end, compared to what they were even just five years ago. Uh, and now some of the packaging and some of the physical constraints on where I place everything uh, to support everything that's going on in this chiplet-based uh, processor are becoming harder and harder. And so we're actually, in some cases, running out of space. In some cases, it's harder to do the routing on the motherboards. And so one of the things that we see going on is that packaging is becoming much more critical, especially in places like servers where chiplets are being used to dramatically improve the performance of the processor. Super interesting. Super interesting. Okay. Could I just ask a, a, a perhaps naive clarifying question? When we talk about AI for uh, memory for AI, for especially obviously we've talked a lot about HBM for AI. Is that for training or does inference have that requirement too? Yeah, so it turns out that um, what we're seeing now 
is, uh, you know, in, in the past, people would often use the exact same infrastructure or engines for both training and for inference. And it turns out, uh, if you're doing that, if you're building an engine that's good at both, and you have to kind of provide the right resources for the tougher case, which is training. And that's really what's driven um, the, the, the rise of HBM is that training is very difficult and it's very data intensive. So you need high capacities and high bandwidths. Inference is a slightly different story. So um, the demands can be high for very large models, but you know, really I think the desire is um, to be able to take trained models and to push them to all kinds of devices. You know, the, it would be great if you could take very advanced models and push them to your phone. Well, in that case, you really can't put HBM in a phone. And so the question becomes, how do you take a trained model that's trained to be very accurate and allow it to run on something that is lower cost and that has um, you know, a lower performing memory? That's really an open question right now. Uh, people are doing interesting things like you know, training a very high precision model and then reducing the precision of it and hoping that the accuracy is good enough. And if you reduce the precision, you may do things like pruning and quantization. Basically, you're making the numbers less accurate, and you're hoping that in, in, uh, in some total, the model still maintains a reasonable accuracy. But if you do that, it means you can put it on lower-performing hardware and push it everywhere. So you know, what we're seeing in the AI market now is this almost bifurcation in the way you think about um, how to handle both sides, the training side and the inference side. And so I'd say it's an open question, but the desire, of course, is to be able to do inference on lower performing hardware. Interesting. Okay. Yep. So I want to be conscious of time. So I want to shift gears a little bit. And we've talked a lot about the, the, sure. the, the big three uh, memory DRAM companies, two in South Korea, one in the U.S. But I, I feel obligated to ask about China every time I talk about semiconductors. What, what's going on with memory in China? Are there any interesting companies there that are, there are lots of memory companies. Are any of them sort of competitive? Are any of them have a hope of becoming, you know, big, serious exporters? Yeah, I think, um, you know, China has uh, made it an objective to try and uh, become a, a bigger supplier of semiconductors, you know, not only within China, but, you know, the hope is outside of China as well. And one of the companies that uh, was uh, was formed to really try to address the memory market is a company called CXMT. Yeah. And they do have a desire longer term to be able to challenge really the top memory manufacturers, people like Samsung and Micron. You know, the um, CXMT is you know, producing DRAM. Uh, and I think, you know, it, uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, you know, we need to just kind of watch that and sort of see how well they're able to uh, to challenge the big memory manufacturers. Memory is interesting and it's tough in the sense that um, it takes many cycles of learning to get very good at what's going on. And it's a high capital investment kind of business. And so you really have to have kind of a fortitude to be able to say, I'm willing to commit billions and billions of dollars for many years before I may you know, make it to the, the level of people like a Samsung or a Micron. And I think, you know, I think there is a desire uh, within China to see that happen. But, you know, it's going to take time and it will take, again, a, a kind of commitment um, over a sustained period of time in order to really get to that point. So 
Uh, I'd say the desire's there. And uh, I think the world's watching to see how well uh, companies like CXMT are really going to be able to execute on that vision. Yeah, I, my, my sense is the, the the will is there and the billions in investment is there. I'm, I'm, I think the limitation is going to be lithography and, and other tools. Yeah. That's right, and uh, you know one of the one of the challenges that we see is that um, you know there's what the technology does, and then there's the learnings uh, that you you get along the way. There's a lot of things you can simulate, and you can get insight through simulation. And there's a lot of things you can't simulate, and you almost have to just do it in order to try and and get your learning. So some of this is going to come through you know, smart simulation and analysis. And some of it's just going to come through, you know, rolling up your sleeves and going through the process and making mistakes and learning from them. And that, in practice, that just takes time. So, you know, that's that's why this is really kind of a long game. And, you know, tools are part of it. So lithography machines and things like that are a part of it. And then there's also kind of the human learning aspect of it as well. So it'll be a very interesting um kind of development to watch over the next few years and really to just kind of see how it shakes out. Fantastic. So one, one, one last question just for, for everyone. So, so maybe just over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, what sort of milestones should we be looking for? Um, you know, I think we all kind of know what that is in logic, but I'd be curious for your view, you know, what are the kind of things that if we see news or we see the memory industry move in this direction, these are kind of milestone moments over the next, however far you want to go, 18 months, two years, anything. Yeah, that's a great question. So it really is, I think, coming down to in cases like AI, um, you see people talk about, you know, my training engine is is much better than my previous generation. In AI, those training engines, the performance is tied so closely to the memory performance. If the industry is executing on AI styles of memory, like HBM, uh, what you'll see is you'll see tremendous progress in the growth rate of the training capability of those engines. In the case of something like DDR, um, really, I, you know, like I was mentioning before, the core count is starting to become limited a bit by how much memory we can put around the processors. You know, if you if you continue to see the core counts grow in these uh, processors, it's an indication that the memory industry is delivering on what's needed in terms of capacity and bandwidth. And then, uh, you know, there's there's other great applications like in gaming for graphics cards and game consoles. You know, if you if you continue to see more realistic graphics, for example, and you continue to see better game development, those are signs that the the GDDR uh, part of the market is delivering on the needs for what's needed there. And then in the mobile space, you know, it's it's always been the case that we kind of measure the progress of phones by the feature set that's coming out and by battery life and things like that. As long as the phones are continuing to be more full featured, the cameras are better, the screens are better, and the apps are better as well. And if we don't need to charge our phones uh, as, as often, that's a sign that the memory industry for LPDDR is executing according to what's needed there as well. Mm. So those are just kind of examples of how we can tell whether or not the industry uh, on the on the memory side is really uh, uh, is able to keep up with the with the needs of the industry. Yeah, no, that's that's super helpful. I mean, honestly, I I, I think we we take for granted that memory has to move with logic the same way, and you know, semi, you know 
CPUs, GPUs, NPUs, whatever, right? They get all the attention, but memory has to move with them. And I think we just too often take those for granted. So that, that was really great. I mean, I know I, this is super helpful for me. I mean, you know, like I said, this is more of a, this was a, a learn from Steven conversation because it's not, you know, it's not the space that we're in the depth of. So I really appreciate you, uh, you joining us and helping discuss more of the, uh, the memory space. It's, it's been great. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm very, very happy to thank you again for having me. I think the thing I'll close by saying is that there's a lot of really interesting challenges in the memory industry, but you know, it's an interesting time as well because memory is kind of front and center now. So you know, it's a lot of fun to do what we do because there's these interesting challenges and you're really pushing the forefront of technology. And uh, I have no doubt there's going to be some amazing innovations in the, over the next decade to kind of enable the needs of these various markets that we talked about. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, we'll look forward to having you back and, and dive into some more subjects at uh, some point in the future. So thanks again. Thanks for listening, everybody. It's been, uh, it's been a great, great learning episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Like, uh, subscribe, tell your friends. And uh, thanks again. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, everybody. Right. Thanks again for having me. Thank you.